the Gospel of John, chapter 2. So if you'll turn to two places, John chapter 2 and also Exodus chapter 12. John chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 12. We're going to start with verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So there was one portion of this scripture towards the end in verse 24 that said, because he knew all men. And that's a very important phrase for us to remember, not only in our day-to-day walk with the Lord, but also because that's a picture of who Jesus is. He is God. He is the creator. He created each and every one of us. So not only does he know us, he knows everything about us. He knows everything that's in us. He knows us intimately, inside and out. That's just a glorious thing, but it's a scary thing as well at times, isn't it? Because there are those times in our Christian walk where we might have things going on and we like to yeah, I don't really want God to see that one. I, I would like to tuck that one away and, and, you know, make that invisible to the Lord. That's just not possible. He sees all things. He knows all men. And so our text this morning, verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover, what is it? You've heard many teachings on that probably before. Uh, And I don't want to get into a teaching on the Passover this morning. Uh, That alone could take weeks and weeks if you really wanted to apply yourself to that. But I do want to look at it uh, just very quickly this morning so we have a better concept of what's happening in this scene. So Exodus chapter 12, if you're there, uh, I'm not, so you're more prepared than I am. But uh, Exodus chapter 12, we'll get uh, just a summary this morning of what that's all about. And we know that... um, There were the ten plagues that were going on during this time. Uh, Moses was there. This would be the tenth plague, the plague of all plagues, if you will, uh, for uh, the children of of Israel as they were there, but also for the Egyptians. Starting with verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, 
Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled, all with water, but roasted in fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of, let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Back to the book of John. Now there is so much there. <laughs> really, each verse that we just read is a teaching in and of itself. You could spend so much time on that. But what I wanted to try to capture this morning as we move through uh, this portion of John chapter 2 is that this is the feast that Jesus is going to, this everlasting covenant, this ordinance, this, this feast that God has said, keep it going from generation to generation. The male Jews at that time would be required to go to this feast and so we see that happening. This last of the ten plagues, during the time that Moses was in Egypt, he's telling Pharaoh, let my people go, time and time again. You just picture Charlton Heston standing right there telling him that, right? Let my people go. This plague of judgment of the firstborn on the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The Israelites, they were instructed to kill this Passover lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lintel of their homes. That picture is really interesting to me as well because we all know we have the front doors on our homes and if we were to take blood and spread it on the two doorposts and then on the lintel, the blood actually becomes a shape of the cross. And again, that's so deep in and of itself, we could spend a, a whole study on that as well. We're not going to, we're going to move on, but just have that picture in your mind. That night, the Lord would pass over any home that had the blood appropriately placed on the doorposts and the lintel. And so none of the firstborn in these homes would, would die by the word of the Lord. The Lord said that this day was to be a memorial, an everlasting ordinance, and to be kept as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations, because the Lord's judgment passed over them. This is why Jesus, Jewish male, was going to Jerusalem to this feast of the Passover. 
And we can see throughout the Gospels the many times that Jesus consistently violated the man-made religious traditions, but he always obeyed and fulfilled the laws of God. And this was one of them. So following the Feast of the Passover was this thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this, this feast lasted for seven days. And during this time, they were only to eat unleavened bread. The Jews were required to clean their houses of all the leaven, the, the symbol of sin. Cleaning their houses of sin, if you will. And we're going to see in this next verse, that is exactly what Jesus does when he cleans his father's house and the evil and sin that's in it. We'll see this throughout the book of John, that this event really sets the stage for the riff that goes on between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. This was kind of that uh, main event, if you will, that started that whole process, uh, started it off with a bang, I would say, coming right into the, their area and disrupting things uh, the way that he did. Verse 14, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. The money changers doing business, this business taking place in the temple. Temple business. What, what is going on here? What, what has happened to this religious site? Uh, the, all this temple business happening, the selling of oxen and sheep and doves, these money changers. Why? Why, why is this going on? How did it ever even get started? Well, I think that probably, originally, it was started with the best of intentions. It was probably started as a convenience. This is a time, this feast, that people would be coming from all over the land to Jerusalem. And it was hard to travel. We all know how hard it is to travel with kids, right? Can you imagine an ox or a sheep thrown into the mix with that? It would have been very difficult to do that. Many of them did, but... Here was an opportunity for when they came to Jerusalem that they could buy these animals, you know, for sacrifice or whatever at the, at the temple, uh, not have to deal with hauling them all that long distance. So what started off as a convenience and now developed into a money-making machine uh, for these uh, people at the temple. So those needing a sacrifice for Passover could buy a, a temple-approved sacrifice, at an inflated price, of course. Those who already had a sacrifice, well, it would have to be inspected to see if it was acceptable, and rarely was it, I think. Uh, they would bring these animals in, have them go through the guys that were doing the inspections, and, oh, this one's... Because they were supposed to be without blemish. Uh, if you spend any time around livestock, they all have a blemish, if you spend any time around people, <laughs> you find they have blemishes as well. You know, so without blemish, uh, it's a hard thing to, to come across. But you had these religious leaders of the day saying, we have already uh, vetted these animals and they are acceptable. They are permissible to use as a temple sacrifice. Yours won't work, unfortunately, but here we have one that will. And all it's going to cost you is this much. And I even believe that if somebody had brought an animal that far for this purpose and it wasn't approved, well then what do they do with the animal? Does it just tag around all week? Oh no, I, I believe those uh, ones that were doing this were also saying, hey, you know, yours isn't approved, but there are other uses for it. So since you brought it all this distance, maybe we could buy it from you, to, you know, to use here. 
and they probably pay at a reduced price and they shuffle it back to a, a pin or something somewhere to hold it for a time and then maybe later on in the day, later on in the week, they bring it out and they go, hey, here's a temple approved sacrifice. I, I believe that was going on. I believe that uh, they were really ripping the people off. These approved sacrifices of the day, the oxen, the sheep, the doves, what's that about, you know? Uh, well, that was for the people that were poorer, that maybe couldn't afford to buy an oxen or a sheep, and so a dove would be an alternative for him. Then we also see in this verse the money changers. Now, at this time of the year, taxes were due, and so they would be coming to Jerusalem anyway. It was a good time to go ahead and maybe pay these taxes. And if one didn't have the appropriate currency, then it could be exchanged for a fee, of course. And if you didn't have the correct currency for the purchase of a sacrifice, that could be handled as well for a fee. So you can imagine the poor soul that shows up into the temple with no sacrifice and the wrong currency too. Well, you talk about double dipping. You know, this was, this was just uh, such a bad thing that they were doing. Money was being made and the flocks were being fleeced through this. So as I looked at this and I thought about it, what, what might be a modern day scenario of this very same thing? Let's say that you came to the church service, any church service, and you find out when you come in that the space had been divided up, that someone was at the door and asking, are you saved? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Okay, you can go sit over here in the sanctuary. You know, you, we have this nice space for you to sit. It's warm. But if you said, no, I don't know the Lord. You know, this is my first time here. Oh, well, then you're going to have to sit in this back area back here away from everyone else. That could be going on. Uh, let's say that this was a, a Sunday that you were going to be doing communion and you walk in the door and someone meets you at the door and says, uh, we started a new policy here uh, for communion. You now have to pay for the drink and for the, the cracker uh, you know, for in an inflated price, of course, you know, for this little bitty cup of juice and this little stale cracker or whatever you... This is the fee that you have to pay. It's like going to a Broncos game, maybe, you know, where the prices are inflated. And also, you, you find upon your arrival that your giving, your tithe, is now mandatory. They've said, this is the expectation of what uh, you're going to have to give. And then also that, hey, during this week, we just want to let you know that we came up with our own church currency. We're printing it in the back back here, and it's church currency. It's the only currency that can be used here, whether you're buying books in the bookstore or uh, paying for communion or giving your tithe. Obviously, you don't have the right currency, so we're going to have to do an exchange, and that's going to cost you as well. <laughs> so all of this is going on in the temple, very similar to what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's just a travesty. I'm sure that that have happened to you guys here this morning, you probably wouldn't come back next week. Uh, you know, I wouldn't either. So this temple business that we see in this text, what, who's behind it? What, what is going on here? Who were the only ones that would have the authority to do such a thing? Well, the answer would be whoever is over the temple in the temple courts. Whoever oversees that, they would be the ones that would be behind it because they're obviously allowing it to happen. Have you ever heard the old saying, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps the loudest is the one that got hit? 
We're going to see that happen in this case, that Jesus throws this rock into this pack of dogs by what he's doing, and the ones that are offended by it the most are the ones that are behind it. So this deceit, this misuse of, of the money of the people, it's running in a line straight to the high priestly office, a guy by the name of Annas. They were the ones behind the eventual trial and crucifixion of Jesus as well. Not surprising, I think, as you see the story unfold, right? He offended them greatly by this. So they were the ones here making money. What started off as a convenience was now a ripoff. The religious leaders are lining their pockets. Now, another key thing to look at in this is where was it taking place? Where was all of this happening? Well, it was in the outer court of the temple. Uh, this, this area was called the court of the Gentiles. This was basically as far as the Gentiles could go as progressing towards the temple itself. They couldn't leave this particular area. This is as far as they could come. And if they did cross that line, there was a fee, a fine, maybe even arrest that would take place because that was the rules that were set up. The next was the court of the Israelites or the court of women, as it might be known as, as Israelite men and women could go into that area. And the next area was just for men and then the temple area. So there was this hierarchy of courts that was set in place. The very place where the Jews could be witnessing to the Gentiles, all of this stuff was going on. So the only place set aside for the Gentiles to worship had been turned into a shopping mall of sorts. It's almost like Black Friday was going on, you know, there before uh, the Passover feast. So that which had been set aside as a place for worship and praise was drowned out by the bawling of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, and probably the haggling of vendors and their customers. Uh, I just picture noise. It was just loud. It was supposed to be a place of worship where they could go and uh, hopefully uh, draw closer to the Lord. But all of this is going on. So verse 15, we see that when Jesus had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He made a whip of cords, plural, He's got an ass behind it, right? How many? Well, we don't know for sure. We don't have any detail that tells us how he made this. Ecclesiastes 4.12 might give us some insight. It says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So it could have been a threefold cord. It makes sense. I know that, I don't know like with you guys, but I know when I braid my hair, I use a three. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's been a long time. I had an afro at one time, okay? I just want you to know that. Nice, healthy afro that I put even put in cornrows at one time, uh, which my dad loved that. Yeah. Right. But so if you're braiding something for strength, for stability, you know, even if you're braiding your hair, at least three. And I think Jesus, we can see throughout his whole ministry, he never did anything without purpose, without reason. And I don't want to go off and start a whole new religion based on this or anything, but yet these three chords, I believe it was three chords. I believe it could have been a representation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three in unity, cleansing the temple. Maybe. 
I don't know, something to think about. But chronologically in the Gospels, this cleansing of the temple, this was the first time it happened. It actually happened twice. And we see that documented in Matthew 21, uh, Mark 11, and Luke 19. Um, Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, we see this other time that Jesus cleansed the temple. So he has one cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and then he has another at the end of his earthly ministry. And we even have a hint of this uh, in the cleansing of the temple as a commentary on Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I think it's on the screens, but I'll read it for you. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. A really interesting uh, three verses there as it relates to this scene that we have in John chapter 2. Notice the text. He will suddenly come to his temple. This is the first time Jesus would have come to the temple for the Passover. And it says he is like launderer's soap. I don't know about you, but that, that sounds like cleaning. I know growing up, anytime my mom made any reference to soap at all, it was either laundry or it was me, you know, cleaning. Uh, even to the point of, you know, the soap on the tongue. I don't know how many of you experienced that. My mom had a, a really interesting rule that, that worked very well. It wasn't just a wash your tongue out with soap. It was actually take a bite of it and chew it up. It really only took once, or twice for, for me, a little bit hard-headed. You know, the second time it was lava soap. It worked, Mom. It was effective in doing what you wanted it to do. But this cleansing, this launderer's soap, and it says he will purify the sons of Levi. Who were the sons of Levi? The guys that were overseeing everything that was going on in the temple. So I certainly think these are verses uh, directed towards them. So he made this whip of cords, and it required a certain amount of time. Uh, he was God, so yeah, he could say, whip cords, you know, and it's there. But I believe that he saw what was going on, he walked to the side, he sat down, grabbed these leather straps or ropes or whatever he did and made this whip of cords. It wasn't a spontaneous thing. It wasn't like Jesus walked into the court of the Gentiles and just went off. You know, he, he, he didn't do that. This event, this, the way this thing came down, the way it took place, I don't think it was uh, an immediate knee-jerk reaction by Jesus. That's just not the way Jesus worked. I believe he sat down. I believe while he was even making this whip of cords, he was spending time with the Father because he took all of his direction from the Father, didn't he? It was righteous anger in the life of Jesus that we see exhibited here. It wasn't, well, somewhat like what we are and what we know we are. When we get angry, uh, it's just not always a, a pretty sight, is it? Uh, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Well, can you and can I, can we get angry and still represent God effectively? Can I, in my anger, still be a good representative of God? Yes, I think it is possible. 
but we tend to let flesh get in the way many times. Uh, you know, if you're here this morning and you're going, no, I don't really have a problem with that. Well, let's get in my car and let's go down I-25 for just like 15, 20 minutes, and we'll see how that works out. We typically, we struggle with that. It's, it's tough, and without the guidance and direction and divine intervention, if you will, of the Lord in our lives, that's a very tough thing for us to do is to get angry and not sin. So we have this rip-off market in the court of the Gentiles, and it's sin directly against who? Against God and the things that he had set up and the things that he desired for the people to do. It's a sin against God himself. Well, Jesus is God. We know that. So this had to be very offensive to him. Now, he knows everything, so do you think that he was surprised that this was going on when he walked into the the courts? Uh, I don't think he was surprised. I think he was saddened by it. That which God had set forth as an ordinance, as we saw in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, to be kept for all generations, the shed blood of the lamb, the judgment would pass over, the cleansing out of leaven or sin, the very thing that Christ came to do, Passover, now is being marketed for profit by the very ones who saw themselves holy, those that saw themselves as the religious guidance, the religious leaders uh, for Israel. Jesus is angry, but he's still not sinning. He is representing God perfectly, accurately. Holy, righteous anger, doing what God wants done. Accurately representing God. That should remind us of someone like Moses. The people were complaining and whining. They needed water. Moses had just kind of gotten fed up. He went over and he struck the rock in anger. It still brought forth water. It still gave the people what they needed. So he struck the rock and... We know that he wasn't allowed to move on into the promised land because of that act, not because he struck the rock, but because he was misrepresenting God. God wasn't mad at the people. Saints, we've got to be very careful of that in our lives, that misrepresenting God. That's a statement that I literally, I pray every morning, Lord, help me go through this day without misrepresenting you. And Lord, when I do, or when I'm about to, Lord, may the power of your Holy Spirit Bring that to mind. Bring it to my heart. And if I still give in to it, uh, Lord, correct me. Rebuke me from that. Because we don't want to misrepresent who God is to those that we have opportunity to, to minister to. Verse 16 said that to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Merchandise. That's a word that we can relate to. Our country especially is filled with merchandise. We just went through a season that's all about passing merchandise from one place to to another, whether it be buying it in the stores or having it shipped through Amazon, whatever it is. We are buying gifts. We're gift givers. We like to pass merchandise on. This wasn't just a mishandling of church and temple funds. They were robbing the people and lining their own pockets with this. Jesus' display of force here would have immediately created pandemonium in the court of the Gentiles. Can, can you just imagine the scene? So as I was preparing this study, I was thinking about that, and I um, thought, man, you know, somebody out there has probably already captured this really well, and I found it. 
John MacArthur wrote this about this scene, and I think it's, 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 it's just excellent. You have the animal sellers frantically chasing their beast, which were running aimlessly in all directions. He's driving them out with a whip of cords. So all of these beasts that were there for the purpose of being purchased and those that had them there for sacrifice as well, now all of a sudden are kind of... Uh, God is not a God of chaos. We know that. He's a God of organization. Organized chaos, I guess, is the best uh, word that, that we could use for this. So you have these startled money changers, and no doubt some of the bystanders scrambling desperately on the ground trying to pick up coins. You have those that were selling the doves very quickly, hastily, removing their crates just as Jesus had commanded them. You also have the temple authorities rushing to see what all the commotion was about, what is going on. Yeah, but I think that Jesus was neither cruel to the animals. Uh, whip of cords with the livestock. If you've never had to deal with livestock, there's nothing cruel about using a whip to get them to move in the direction that you want them to move. This is not cruelty to the animals. It's, hey, I need you to go over there. You know, that type of thing. Just moving them from one place to another. I don't think he was overly harsh with the men. But apparently the uproar he created was contained enough to not alert the Roman garrison stationed at Antonio Fortress, which was right by these temple courts, and overlooked the temple grounds as well. And you have to wonder if these Roman guards <laughs> found some satisfaction in this assault on the temple system and its leaders, because over time they gave them so much grief, didn't they? These religious leaders were a thorn in the side of the Roman garrison. So just imagine that scene, this pandemonium. Verse 17 says, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is Psalm 69.9. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Uh, David penned this messianic psalm, Psalm 69.9. Jesus' zeal for pure worship found itself, manifested itself in expression of his concern for God's house. He didn't like what was going on. This was not accurately representing God. It was a total misrepresentation of not only God, but this Passover feast as well. It was not capturing what God had intended for it. And because of this event that took place, Jesus cleansing the temple, just like David, Jesus suffered as a result of this, personally feeling that the pain of his father being dishonored. He, he felt pain for that. Now, the second half of that psalm, 69.9, reads, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. These Jewish leaders never forgot Jesus' assault on the heart of their very religious enterprise, the very seat of their power. He came in and he cleared out the temple, and they didn't forget that. In fact, Christ's two physical cleansing of the temple, along with his constant verbal assaults on their hypocrisy, were more than enough motivation to cause them to pursue his crucifixion. Where did the whole beginning of moving towards the crucifixion start right here right here in this scene verse 18 so the jews answered and said to him 
What sign do you show to us since you do these things? They were looking for a sign. They were looking for a sign of authority. They were basically asking, what gives you the right to do this? What are your credentials? Who are you? They didn't know. I can relate to that. Uh, I have a two-year degree from a community college in engineering technology. Who am I? You know, what are my credentials for ministry? What right do I have to be a pastor? You guys might be pondering that very thing this morning. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm acting on a calling, a God-ordained calling, uh, not, not for the approval of man, but to carry out what I know what God has called me to do. These religious leaders, they wanted to know why Jesus was in the middle of their business. Jesus was about what? I'm about my father's business. He never did anything that the father didn't want, want or instruct him to do. Of course, he was God, but he was also man. So he is carrying out each day under the instruction and the guidance of what God wanted him to do. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So the temple, the temple courts, all of that took 46 years to build, and it still wasn't completely finished. Uh, we can relate to that. <laughs> in any church project that you have, you have things that are finished, and there's always something to do, isn't there? So this shouldn't surprise us. Any construction project has a punch list that you go through at the end of the job to see, did everything get complete? No, we got to go back and do this, and we got to do this. So this was an ongoing project, but for the most part, it was complete. And it was the center of Jewish religious activity. Remember that everything was about the temple and the temple mount. And it was the pride of the Jews. They were very proud of this place that they had that they could call the temple and that they could oversee. And it, it was something be, to behold. It was an architectural wonder. You could see it from miles away coming in because it was overlaid with gold and it would shine. And so this was quite, quite the place. It was something that they could be very proud of. So destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We know that Jesus is speaking here prophetically of his crucifixion and resurrection. He was speaking of the temple of his body. This was the very phrase that would be used against him by the two false witnesses in his trial. You see that in Matthew 26. When he's at his trial, they brought in two false witnesses that said, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So his body, the temple that he's referring to, his body, the tabernacle, throughout the book of John, the one verse that stands true and kind of lays a foundation for everything else that John writes is John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. Words mean the same thing. He dwelt, he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle, the temple, the dwelling place of God. We know that in the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God was there. In the temple, God was there for a time, not at this point. But Jesus, incarnate, God's dwelling place, God with skin on, 
He says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it. Well, they didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't get this. They were confused. What, you know, what, you're going you're gonna to tear this thing down. The, the center of our religious activity that took 46 years to build, you're going to tear it down in three, three days. This structure, our temple, this place that we call ours, sounds maybe like there was too much focus on the building and not enough focus on the Lord, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds very familiar. That can happen even in our day and age. When God blesses us with a place, as long as we remember, remember that it's God's place for worship, to glorify his name, to make him known to others, and we use it for that purpose, representing God well with that facility, it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. And you just give God thanks for the blessing of having that place. Verse 22, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So it's not until after the disciples received the Holy Spirit that they remember and understand these things. Because we see Jesus say to the, in John chapter 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in Jesus' name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. We experience that as well. We can be a part of, uh, say, growing up young and be a part of a church, and maybe we don't have that time where we accept the Lord till a little later on in life, maybe late teens and on. And when we do receive the Lord, we receive his promised Holy Spirit. So as a youngster, maybe those things start coming back to mind. Maybe he brings to remembrance those things that we have been taught. That can happen at any time. If you've been in church for any length of time, you come to know the Lord, his Holy Spirit will bring those things to mind. It'll bring back to remembrance. And it's an ongoing work, isn't it? It doesn't happen just at the time of conversion. The Holy Spirit continues to do that work on, in us as we go on in our walk with him. Bring into remembrance things that he taught us. It could be uh, this afternoon you could be driving somewhere and, oh, yeah, that was something that Pastor Jim shared this morning. Bringing that to mind for whatever situation we might be in. Uh, whatever the circumstances are, he can bring a scripture to mind that is exactly what we need to hear, what we need to see to get through a particular circumstance. Verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now what signs? We see throughout all of the Gospels all the signs that Jesus did, but we don't really have indication of what these signs were but if we jump forward into chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 we see Nicodemus saying to Jesus rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God for what no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him now had Nicodemus had any exposure to Jesus before this time I don't think so I think this this was all encompassed in this time frame that we see here at the Passover. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
We don't know what these particular signs were, but keep in mind what John writes in chapter uh, 20, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. We don't have all of them available to us. We don't know what they were. Some of them were probably very sim similar to other signs that we see that are documented, but we don't know what all they were. But here's what we do know, that Nicodemus and others were present, the disciples we know, and they saw these signs. And what does it say? They believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So Jesus did signs that impressed all of those who witnessed him, and they believed in his name. But they were believing in the signs, weren't they? They didn't fully know who he was and what he was there for. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus was God. Jesus was the creator of all things. Jesus was the creator of man, so he knew man. They believed in his signs rather than in him. He knew they had a sin problem, a problem in which he was the solution. So whatever we go through in our day, in our week, we can always rest in the fact that Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. He is the answer to what we're going through. We can go to Jesus and know that through the power of his Holy Spirit, he's going to give us exactly what we need for whatever circumstances we're facing or whatever we're going through. Faith, right? We've got to have faith that he's there for us. His word tells us that he is. We can take that to the bank. But it's having that faith of knowing, oh, Lord, can you truly understand this circumstance, this situation that I'm going through? So many things in life that we run across, the loss of a loved one, and we don't understand, especially if it's tragic. We just, we just don't always understand, but he's there to minister to us. He knows us. He knew man. He knew what was in man, the scripture says, so he knows what's in us as well. He also saw it in these religious leaders conducting their business in the temple. He met a need. He gave them exactly what they needed, what they needed to see, didn't he? They didn't learn the lesson because, you know, two and a half years later or whatever, he had to come back and do it again. Yeah, well, he sometimes has to do with us as well, doesn't he? Sometimes we don't always get it the first time, so he has to do another cleansing and show us again what it is uh, that we need to be seeing. The temple courts, court of the Gentiles, it needed cleaning out, and he did just that. Our bodies, as when we come to the Lord, our bodies become a holy habitation for the Lord. Our bodies become a temple for the Lord. We know that Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In our text this morning, the temple needed cleaning because of what was going on, the business in the temple. But it wasn't just that. He knew the hearts of men. He knew these men and what was going on because they were rationalizing this is okay somehow. And he knew that there was a work to do in them as well. There was a cleansing that needed to take place in their lives. 
it's true of us still today. We all know that. We all know that we're sinners saved by grace. When we come to Christ, we're not sinless, but we should sin less. Maybe you've heard that before. And that's true. We're not sinless. We still have that capacity in us, the flesh that's in us. We have the capacity to sin. So we're not sinless. And we fall short. Each and every one of us in our own way, we fall short during our day, during our week. And we don't always represent God well. But we have forgiveness because of this Passover blood of the Lamb. We know the true Lamb of God who hung on the cross for us. We have forgiveness. And we have the forgiveness, but it doesn't stop there. He wants to do a continual cleansing. Uh, When I was in several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Costa Rica on a missions trip. And at that point, I didn't speak uh, any Spanish. Uh, Today, I still don't speak any Spanish. (laughs) A few words, baño, I learned that one real quick while I was down there, Uh, but uh, the only point of reference that I really had, uh, you know, I don't handle the English language that well, so my wife under the kitchen counter has this cleaner called Fabuloso, I don't know, maybe you've heard of that, and I thought, wow, if I put that together with the other Spanish word I know, Jesus, Fabuloso, I've got something, you know, so the majority of that trip for me was just saying, Jesus Fabuloso, and I got cheers, and everybody appreciated that so much, not knowing it's all I got. It's all I know. (laughs) But we have a wonderful, a fabulous Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, who loves us so much. Not only does he save us from our sin and uh, put us in a place where we have communion and fellowship with him and with God, but also he continues to do that cleansing. He had to do a cleansing twice, we see in our text. And he wants to do a continual cleansing in us to purge out those things that uh, are causing us harm, that are leading us away from the Lord, not closer to the Lord, and also are misrepresenting God in that. 